Here we are. We're back. Season two of Limitless. Quite a miracle, if you ask me. Going into this whole experience, I figured I would try it for one season and see what would happen. And I had very, even by my standards, low expectations. My goal was to have one person be impacted by this show. The responses and the feedback that we got from season one, as I say this with chill bumps on my arms, were incredibly humbling. And it made the time and effort in collaboration with CasSource and all the guests worth it. And I just can't thank each and every one of you for listening to this and taking time to hear the stories. And hopefully it's had just as much or even half as much impact as it's had on my life. The stories in season one were incredible. They were full of wisdom and motivation and inspiration and tactics that can help you crush it in commercial real estate and frankly, life. I didn't think I'd have a snowball's chance in hell and being able to replicate the guest lineup and thus the stories that come from the guests in season two. And as crazy as this sounds, they're just as good. And I cannot wait for each and every one of you to hear the stories because these guests have incredible impact on our business by virtue of the impact that they made within their organizations. And a lot of these guests have their unique stories of their personal lives that has impacted society. We've had US legislation change. We've got a leader who's leading a publicly traded company by day and a non-for-profit that is massive at night and everything that you can imagine in between. And I'm really excited for you to join us on this journey again. Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CASCM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. 12 million square feet across 50 properties with a market cap of over a billion dollars for a publicly traded company. Imagine that being the company that you run as the CEO. Also imagine having an enormous responsibility on a non-for-profit that directly hits home for you, all at a pretty young age. Brian Harper has accomplished what most people would dream about accomplishing in 40, 50 years in this business. He's done so in less than half that time. I had an incredible conversation with him. His story is amazing, and I can't wait for you to hear it. I'm so excited to have Brian Harper, the CEO of RPT Realty, on our show. Brian, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. I'm good. Let's get right into it. Tell me about yourself go way back. As far as you can remember, how did you grow up? What was your family life like? Where was it? Tell me about your parents, the whole nine. So I'm sitting here in my office and at 44th and 5th in Manhattan. And whole family is originally from New York City. I was actually born in Greenwich, Connecticut. Moved when I was young to the north suburbs of Chicago, Lake Forest, Illinois. But always been a Northeastern parent's grandparents, great-grandparents. It's eight or nine generations of, of a New Yorker. Dad was a banker for bank. He actually opened up an office for Bank of New York in Chicago. Mom was a school teacher. I had, have, still have a brother and a sister. I'm the oldest. I grew up in an athletic family. Um, brother and I going at it a lot on, on the basketball court from probably the age of four and two, me being four, him being two. And and even sister played competitive lacrosse and field hockey, I think just from having two older brothers, but just still very close to both of them. Very close, uh, thankfully, to my parents who are both still living. And I'm very fortunate that it was a great upbringing and, and feel very blessed on that. How old were you when you moved from Greenwich to Chicago? I was young, so I was you know a few years old. Got it. But came back mostly every summers and or Christmases, and kind of so I always kind of had this like two multiple city home, if you will. Sure. Aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents, and you know we're all in either 
the city or Connecticut. Got it. Tell me more about your basketball career, if you will. Yeah, it ended with a big ACL injury. So I really, my two sports, I played it all kind of till high school, if you will. I mean, everything from football when we were allowed to tackle. I think that started in, in sixth grade to basketball, baseball, tennis, soccer, lacrosse, you name it. Not competitive hockey, but pond hockey, which we loved. And and really, it kind of came down to tennis and basketball. And, and tennis was more of a year-round sport. Basketball was obviously winter. So really kind of niched into those two. Had a bunch of knee issues my senior year, but really used that period of my time of, of being down for the count to coach youth and really get involved with coaching kids and in our local Lake Forest Recreation Department, which I had a blast. I'm sure. Kind of down for the count, which is a bummer, but really used that to kind of give back and you know, really liked that. And actually did a number of camp counselings after that in, in the summers, sometimes throughout college. And that went from there. It's interesting to me. People and no one in particular more than the guests when I ask about people's upbringings is more curious. What, like, why the hell is this guy asking me about how many brothers and sisters? It's when you begin with the end in mind and you think about where you've ended up in your career in a leadership role, I think oldest sibling. And then you talk about your coaching experience, which I'm sure has played a huge inspiration on in your career with leading and motivating. You know, you probably got that, if I had to guess, from your mom with her being a teacher. And obviously, the financial thinking with, with what our business involves, you know, I can't help but reflect on what you said that your dad did for a living and how he opened up a new office for Bank of New York and Chicago. So it's, it's like, doesn't shock me when I hear how you grew up and the way that you describe it that, oh, yeah, it kind of makes sense that this guy's doing exactly what he's doing now, which we'll certainly get into your story more, which is a great segue for me to shut up and, and hear more about you. Tell me, where, like, were you a good student? What, you said you went to college. Yeah, I was, I was a good student. I had more fun outside of the classroom. Went to University of Kansas. Got sold truly on going to a Kansas-Missouri game in Allen Fieldhouse. 19,000 people packed. and Rock chalk, baby. Yeah, and, and was going in originally to the journalism school, which they had a very great program and, and it ended up going into switching into history major, which I was going to be a lawyer, which thankfully I'm not. <laughs> I love lawyers, but you know, I would not be a good lawyer. So yeah, that's kind of ended there. Looked at a number of schools and fell in love with KU. And, and obviously I'm a, I'm a diehard Jayhawk fan still. There you go. Rock Chalk. One of the kids I coach. I actually, we actually share something in common, both a love for basketball and coaching. I coached at the high school that I played at for five years. And one of the guys that we had played at Kansas and just unbelievable experience. So they've got a soft spot in my heart too. So that's awesome. So you ended up at Kansas. You were a good student at Kansas too, I assume. Yeah, I would say it was good. I mean, I, for me, I had an internship in college when I had kind of the sports injury, if you will. I was in a fraternity house. It's like, what else am I going to do? And for me, I always have to have that extra thing outside of academics to really maintain that balance in life and kind of the to maintain my drive. And so I literally, I remember going to Hastings Bookstore, which I don't think they're no longer in business and picking out this America's Top 100 internship book. And really, I mean, it was like athletics and coaching, but I wrote a a kick-ass uh, letter, cover letter to 75 companies across the US. That did anything or would you... Mostly business. But I mean, this ranged from NBC to the New York Knicks to you know a number of, number of different things through Goldman Sachs and really internships and, and got one with EMI Records. It was the only one that came back. You know, said, hey, we are looking for an internship in the Kansas City Lawrence region. And I immediately started cold calling them and got in front of them in New York before they got ahead of the interview process and got the job. EMI then was bought out my sophomore year. So really a year and a half into it. Love that music business. It was sales, it was marketing, it was a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. Got to go to New York a lot and sit down with bands and and really hear the up and coming bands and be a part of kind of their marketing strategy. Mm -hmm. 
And then they got bought. The whole thing was cut. And so I'm like, what am I going to do? This was the same summer that you worked there? Or give us some context. A year and a half later. So I worked for them a year and a half. Oh, got it. While you were in school. Yeah, during school, during summer. I mean, you were essentially their promotions person for a multi-city region in the US. They had 13 college reps, right? I got to imagine that was... You're talking to girls at school. It had to have been a pretty easy conversation starter. It was backstage passes and CDs when there were CDs months before they came out. It was conference calls with artists and their AR people. It was incredible experience. And so it just halted. I'm like, what the hell do I do? You know, I mean, this is going to be a big kind of DNA of coming out of college and maybe something I'd want to do. So I just, again, just picked up the phone and started calling Sony and Universal and all the brands under Universal from Capital and Interscope and Def Jam and all that and got a hold of this guy named Chris Clancy at Universal. And he's like, I'm I'm thinking about... We have this college program. It's successful. We have 13 or 12 people. And I'm thinking about adding Lawrence to it. It's a great music scene. And you have Kansas City and St. Louis and... That's your regions. And you know it's a laundry list of people that are applying. And I'm like, I'll be out in LA next week. And I'm going to be out there anyway. And so I maxed out my credit card and flew out to LA and got in front of them and got the job. Just to clarify, I got to cut you off. I apologize. And I hate doing that. Yeah. But just to clarify, you obviously did not have a trip to LA booked. No. Gosh, no. There's not enough words to describe to tell you how much... A, I can admittedly resonate with as I say a little quieter. But B, love and can relate to. That is amazing. I, I love that. There's so many things about that you said so far. Like I'm like, oh, I got to jump in, but he's going. Don't stop him. I mean, you wrote 75 letters to companies. Unbelievable story. Unbelievable lesson to take away from that for anybody who's maybe looking to break into the industry, which I know some of our listeners do. So really incredible stuff. So you fly out to LA on a whim, maxed out your credit card to do that. I mean, talk about an entrepreneur at heart. Yeah, I literally still remember it was a $500 limit and just maxed it out. I mean, you had no money, right? And just took a chance knowing I had a year and a half experience. It was probably a year and a half more experience than anybody, other candidates, right? I mean, as a sophomore and we just hit it off, right? And obviously that experience, obviously kind of getting in front of person face to face, not over a phone, right? Gets an edge up and this is about angles and this is about using those angles and, and putting ourselves in the best position forward. And we hit it off. And Chris was a huge influence in my life for many years. And so you go back to academics. Academics actually came pretty easy to me where I didn't have to study a lot. Oh, you were one of those annoying people who would go <laughs> out the night before and then make an A on the test. Yeah, yeah. But so I had a lot of fun and I worked a ton. And I would be part of LA collaborative sessions in Universal Music Studio or Music Group's office with Blink-182's team or Jay-Z or Eminem you know, at the time. And it was really an amazing experience on the business aspect of it, the promotions aspect of it, the branding aspect of it, the sponsorship. We were very active with Puma at the time, which really was before Puma was even cool. Chris was just a marketing mind and marketing genius. And so I had kind of two educations. I mean, I worked. I didn't do spring breaks. My spring breaks were being in South by Southwest with both EMI and Universal. My buddies would be in Cancun or, or skiing. And you know, I'd be working in Austin, Texas, a city I love. Really, before Austin, Texas is what it is now, but I fell in love with it then. And I mean, I worked my tail off throughout the year, throughout the summer. I mean, we'd have major conference calls night before a big exam. So it taught me the discipline of time management, but also gave me that other spoke that energized me, which kind of replaced that athletics through the high school years. Sure. So you're doing great in school. You have this, I mean, bigger than life internship throughout college. This goes on for quite some time. What happens as you're winding down your time in Lawrence? What happens after school? Yeah, so I was going to go work for DreamWorks. 
which was Steven Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and David Geffen's company. And, and they just launched the label that fell into Universal Music. And just something in my spirit or soul just fell off. That was a great world for college. But hanging out with the artists, and they're amazing people, artists, and this is not all, but you know, coming home late at night, that road life, that life of a lot of drinking, a lot of, a lot of smelling like smoke, all kinds of smoke then, right? And yeah, I'm like, this is not a lifestyle for me. And you, know, you could do it in college where I can be removed, but to do it for a profession, I called my girlfriend, now my wife at the time, and one night I said, I'm not going to move forward. I just don't feel right. I don't feel convicted that this is my destiny. I can't explain it, but I think there's something else. And she's like, what are you going to do? You did have all of your eggs and your internship basket. And yeah, music- all of it. I mean, I went all in. And I remember throughout high school, I was kind of had like majors where I went to high school and, and architecture was one of them. And there's a teacher there who was a big influence of my life who was actually a basketball coach too, named Mr. Palenka, Mr. P. His son, Rob Palenka. Yeah, I was going to say, Palenka is a big name in the basketball world. Is now a prominent figure with the LA Lakers and was the only McDonald's All-American basketball player from our high school. And he went on to play for the Fab Five and was the man off the bench for the Fab Five. And so Mr. P was just a big influence in my life on it's like you don't want to be in architecture you want to be in real estate but you want to have the design aspects to really succeed in real estate and i went back to that moment when i called my wife i said i think i want to go into real estate i remember mr p and and this and i'm good in finance i'm good in design and aesthetics and i think you know it's always been a passion of mine of buildings and how they work and behind the scenes and and she's like well, well you don't know anybody in real estate i'm like well, I'll find someone. And so literally, I mean, it's like, I've always been the person when I make up my mind and, and pivot. It's like no turning back, right? It's like that not second guessing, going all in. And from there on, I just started networking. And my dad actually being in Chicago did a lot of business in Kansas City. And he knew someone who knew someone who knew someone that was in real estate and on the brokerage side. So a gentleman named Tim Schaefer who's an extremely successful Kansas City broker, took my interview. And at that time, I think if you could fog a mirror, considering that you basically get a draw, you know, a $19,000 draw. Big money. Huge. And I think I was making more in college than that, literally through these internships that you had to pay back. And he said, listen, we just started a few interviews and a few conversations and explaining investment side and office and industrial and, and retail and ended up working for a, a brokerage firm called Cohen Esri. And it was a great, right? I mean, it was a launching pad of my career. I owe a lot to Tim and him. And he's a phenomenal entrepreneur and, and phenomenal mind that's still extremely successful in the Kansas City office world today. But really started off for a short skip and a jump in an industrial. And they pivoted me to retail like quickly. Did you have anything to do with that? Why? I'm just curious. No, I think it was just more of a need. And really at the time, the pipeline of kind of the cities we were representing or the cities we were playing in, there wasn't really a personal opinion. Now, industrial was much slower and not as dynamic from a call it an entrepreneurial spirit perspective. You know, I always look back and go, what if, you know, like I'm still an industrial and that's not a, that's not a bad place to be today by any yeah. means. But, you know, at the time, I always think it's just destiny and, and, and legacy. And so I went into retail and literally was street of hard knocks of a couple of mentors, but you're an independent contractor and, and you're catching them post six or at six or seven in the morning. And it was a phone book and a phone and go get them and educating myself and wanted to quit every night because of the lack of money. But did you like the process though? I mean, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, it literally was, you know, you're doing 200 calls a day. The light of that, you know, I mean, starting grinding at like from 7 a.m. tonight, I mean, 
I had the book at, at the time of every single retailer with the real estate CEO. I mean, it really grounded me and it caught me the grit of, I think, a lot of who I've become today. And, and the excitement, Aaron, to me was you just never knew the outcome after that call. And I remember too, my grandpa on my mom's side was a serial entrepreneur. My grandfather on my dad's side was another banker and a long lineage of bankers. I'm halfway between the corporate finance and entrepreneur now. You know, I got the best genes of both. And my grandpa always said, like, he had the big Rolodex on his desk in Connecticut. And I remember 13 years old looking at him and almost saying, like, what is this? And he's like, that right there is more important than whatever is going to be in your bank account. So what is this? And he's like, it's my relationships. And this is family, this is friends, but this is business. And money can come and go, but it's what's in this relationship, what your relationships will always be there. And so for me, like that line where I can vividly even remember the carpet, the wallpaper, and the smell of that office, that is office in Greenwich, Connecticut, like that was a pivotal time where I thought about that every day. And so every call, I'm like, I got to build that same Rolodex that my grandpa Craig had. Right. And it was like a beast within me of just wanting to be better, wanting to increase my relationships. And at 21, 22 years old, it's like, you know, I'd rather start a career at 22 than 40. Right. And both parents were like, you're out of your mind. We paid for your college and you're taking a draw and you're getting into debt. And I said, I'm going to try it out. I could always pivot back to get a salary position. But as that kind of first week went by, second week, month, and I just fell in love with it. So made $7,000 my first year. So I was 12 in the hole. And the second year did quite well and, and won Rookie of the Year in the city. And, and kind of the rest is history. One of the mentors there went off and formed a, a company called Red Development. And ended up a couple years later, I believe, going to Phoenix to be leasing within that company, doing on a merchant development for Walmarts and Targets through Phoenix, but a lot of mid-market areas, Madison, Wisconsin, Omaha, Nebraska. They just built a really thriving business and learned a ton there, you know, of open air and power centers and lifestyle centers. And, and then I remember one of the big guys at uh, GGP but way back in the day called me and I was leasing up a bunch of centers in Omaha. And then he said, we'd love to meet. Just to clarify the story. So you went from the brokerage shop to Red. That actually did happen. I did. Okay. I did. Okay. And at that point, you're how old roughly? I must have been 24-ish, 25-ish. Got it. And then you were at Red for a couple of years or however long it was. Yeah, for a few years. And then a couple of people from GGP called and said, we're sick in here in your name. We're sick in here and from the tenants. We need to meet you. And they had two centers in Omaha. We were building a bunch of centers in Omaha. One out west with your who's who of lifestyle centers. And, and so I agreed to meet. And you know, it was at the time, it felt like George... Steinbrenner calling and he had to take the call. And so... George Steinbrenner, for those who don't know, being the former owner of the New York Yankees, the analogy he's making is that when the Yankees call, you answer. What year is this roughly? I mean... I mean, this must have been 2005, 2004-ish, so right? This is quintessential so, build it bigger and better power center era yeah. leading into really the peak of the economy up until about 2007. So yeah, understood why you would have taken that phone call. So... Sorry, go ahead and continue. Yeah, no. And so, you know, that led to me going there and learning large corporate and, and just having to work in a dynamic environment and, and kind of the enclosed small space. I was an open air guy and did that for a number of years, got through experience bankruptcy, largest corporate bankruptcy of real estate ever, which was eye opening and really a tough, even tough period of my life. In 2005, our son, was born and Caleb, who's now 15. And during that bankruptcy period, he was diagnosed. We were actually living in Chicago. He was diagnosed with autism. So I had all these huge stressors, you know, of 
job insecurity, <laughs> future of unknown, a son who was a dream of mine as a young kid of, of having a son. And, and you kind of got all these punched in the gut, if you will, all at once. We're definitely going to talk more about Caleb, for sure. For sure. Because I think everybody really wants to hear about him. But for purposes of making sure that we get your chronological story. So BGP is going through the largest bankruptcy ever in our business. It's 2008. Yeah, 2008, 2009. And they successfully navigated through it, made it out, brought in a new team that did a tremendous job of kind of reorganizing the company. They obviously needed to, to clear a bunch of debt. Out comes Howard Hughes and out comes Rouse, which I was one of three people to help take it out and kind of formulate business plans and strategies and, and really build a team. And so that was a lot of work and call it late 10, all of 11. And we rang the bell on the New York Stock Exchange January 6, 2012. So let's take a major step back and talk about your roles within these organizations. And your career path is interesting, right? Because I started at bigger companies and then went smaller and then started my own, which is minuscule now. We had three people compared to 300 when I worked at Phillips Edison, for example. You did the opposite approach. You worked at a boutique brokerage firm and then you went to an up-and-coming developer and then you went as big as it gets by going GGP. Were you in leasing that whole time? I was in leasing the whole time from all sorts of box and restaurants and small shop and manager positions and all the bits, but yeah, operational leasing. A man who understands the backbone of the business, leasing. Yeah. yeah. Obviously having a similar background, but go ahead. And then at that Rouse, my first position there was running leasing as EVP and that shifted to acquisitions and then shifted to COO and then shifted to CEO. So that landed that plane. You know, we were privatized by Brookfield in 2016, ran that for a couple years under the private umbrella. And then RPT, formerly known as Ramco Gershenson, opened up, came calling and was doing an open search and met with their board a few times and really decided that was a it was a very tough decision, but decided that was the next move for my career. And it kind of gave me a, a kind of blank slate of a large but small 2 billion company, but, but small enough to really move the needle. I feel like I'm a turnaround guy. And I think there were some systems and processes and people that and assets that needed to be turned around. So the thought of having the board support having a blank slate, having the ability to bring in a new team with a new vision and, and a launching pad to create something great was highly intriguing. I'm sure. And we definitely want to hear more about that. But I owe it to anybody who is, let's call it, under less than 10 years in the business who works for someone else, which is the vast majority of our listeners, meaning that they work for other people. And a lot of them are are younger in the business. There's plenty of experts that have been around for a long time that listen too. But, and I think anybody, whether if you've been in the business a day or a decade or, or five decades, would love to hear a little bit more about how you went from running leasing to acquisitions. Because to me, as someone who's done that, running from leasing at a small family office like Peb to then basically doing acquisitions, because when I started Zig, the portfolio was zero. So you have to buy properties. You did that on a major scale, if I understood your story correctly, you went from running the leasing department to acquisitions, which in my opinion, made you equipped by being able to understand both sides of it to be COO and then CEO. Tell me about that evolution from leasing to acquisitions. And then you can either confirm or, or add color to my assumption or tell me I was dead wrong, which I've certainly been plenty of times on that making you qualified to go from doing acquisitions to COO, and then obviously the COO to CEO transition is often the one that people can stomach and understand. It's more of a natural progression, if you will. Do you mind kind of touching on that path? Because yeah. that's obviously critical. I mean... Listen, I was blessed with a great team, right? And you had a great team both on acquisitions, you had a great team on leasing. It all goes back to surrounding yourself with people even better than you, right? So... I owe a lot to that. We had a great foundation, great 
culture of accountability and that people executing at the highest levels. I think always with leasing and, and acquisitions, I always think that you know the two should align more. Where another quote I live by is Gretzky, you know, with skating where the puck's going to be, not where the puck's at. And in our world, retailers drive where the puck's going to be, right? And that's understanding demographics. That's understanding the next Nashville, the next Austin. That's understanding the next street corner, maybe in Manhattan or the next up and coming borough. And I've always been fascinated. I mean, that goes back to my love of architecture and the love of finding the next, right? And so that was just really natural. And, and just finance has been good. So it came again with a great team that it just was a natural move. And being a relationship person with retailers of understanding where they're expanding, <laughs> it's fairly simple. Texas is our next major expansion from X, Y, and Z tenant. You fly to Texas, you sit down with the local brokers who know every street corner, and you're either assembling or you're buying an existing cash flow that may be redeveloped, or you're buying existing cash flow that's stabilized. And if you're building out a portfolio, so it was very, and on that perspective, it was very natural and flowed very seamlessly. So my assumption is, and tell me where I'm wrong if I am wrong. At that point, your resume included running leasing and running acquisitions, which made you like a kind of a no-brainer candidate when the COO opportunity came up. Is that fair to assume? Yeah, and no, I think again, it's and just the history and knowledge of the company, you know, at that time and kind of knowing where every square inch of those assets on the spaces and and having the relationships with asset management and the mall managers and Obviously, leasing and but finance, CEO, CFO, all that. And so, yeah, it's knowledge plus those two for sure, I think. But again, it a great team, a very, very good team that many have, you know, are in big seats today. So, I'm extremely blessed by that experience. Well, it sounds like there was a perfect combination, right, of a company who was on the up and up and you taking your skill set and running through any cracked doors, right? I mean, because that's a lot of position changes within an organization and really not a lot of time. I mean, you're saying you rang the bell on the New York Stock Exchange in 12 and you were there until 16 or 17. I mean, you did some big stuff in a short period of time. It's very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it was there actually there till April of 2018. And my garden leave was 60 days. And I started at RPT June 15th of 2018. Tell us about your time there. It's been so rewarding. It's been hard at first, you know, with change, it's very hard. But from the day one, you know, I was very transparent with the organization saying there will be change. And the three P's I said, people's processes and properties. And I'm not going to be a leader that says everything's fine. This is going to be the same. And I think that moment and that first town hall really showed people that. I'm looking at vulnerability and transparency as a strength, not a weakness, and I'm not going to hide anything. So that first year, I saw all the assets before I started. So the first week, we went through 10-year cash flows on every asset, knowing that this is my kitchen sink moment to sell any assets that you know might not hit our IRR trajectory of where we want to take the company. So we came up with $200 million of, of assets that didn't hit the IRR threat. Threshold. Most were tertiary in nature. So we, we sold $200 million within that first six months. We hired, reorganized the C-suite. We kept Detroit office, but started a office in New York and had a leasing from Acadia, CFO from RPAI, GC from Brookfield. And it just brought a, a lot of high-talented people. We decentralized most of the leasing staff. So instead of Detroit, they were in the field. This is a regional and local business and boots on the ground and knocking on doors and understanding where the puck is, but where the puck's going to be as well. We reset the board. And it's something too, we're really proud of. It's, it's gender neutral and one of a few percentages of companies publicly traded that really have a gender neutral board. And it brought in people with hospitality background, brought in people with e-commerce background, brought in dynamic digital minds. and. We had three outstanding board members as well that were currently on the board that stayed. 
And then the processes, you know, we brought in the lease approval process, executive lease committee. Every Monday morning at nine o'clock, I'm seeing every renewal, every new deal. And, you know, to really stay in front of that business and stay close to that business. We have bi-weekly pipeline calls, going space to space, knowing that Sephora might be two weeks behind on schedule. How do we get them ahead of schedule? TC, construction, development, or leasing, right? And internalized a lot of legal. This was all externally outsourced and we brought it in and saved a bunch of money on that. But more importantly, I think our average lease negotiation down to 49 or 50 days instead of 130 days. So I said, you put all those three Ps, the processes, the people, and the properties, you put them in a mixing bowl. And what came out in 2019, some big growth. So we, out of 19 open air REITs, we led the sector in, in NOI with 4.1%. Number one, we led the sector in, in spreads from leasing spreads. And we led the sector in occupancy growth. And then we finalized that year, which was a good stock year performance as well, with bringing in GIC on a $450 million transaction where I've seeded five assets and and got a large forward commitment. It was one of the first sovereign wealths in the space in the sector for God knows who long. So that was very well received by the street. And obviously, we use those proceeds. We have five or six deals under contract, January of 2020, and really excited about it. And I don't know where that's going. This crazy world that we live in and the pandemic hit and I called them up. I said, I think we got to get out of like cash is king and we have no idea where this is going to go and nor does anybody. <laughs> so let's just pull out and, and we did. So it was amazing, Aaron. I mean, we, we were very fortunate to kind of have to be in a, just a great liquidity position throughout the pandemic. The onset too of 2018, sitting in front of those same employees where I said, there's going to be change. I said, you know, I want your work-life home balance too, to be fruitful. I want you thriving at home and I want you thriving at the office. And I don't want to be a leader where it's just words. I want to be a leader with action. And right then and there, I said, you're going to have a mandatory work from home day. We're going to go virtual. You're going to have home. Maybe it's the Fridays, right? Depending on your managers. But we're pivoting to the cloud base. We're pivoting to teams. You know, We're pivoting to being virtual where I just think it's best practice too to be more digital forward rather than no digital. <laughs> and I'm like, Dude, like, thank God we did that because if we didn't do that, I mean, there were many in the company that had desktops and not cloud systems. And remember my CFO looking at me at the time when I said that, like, what the hell are you doing? When was this? Do you remember exactly? June of 2018. Got it. It was literally like June 18th, June 19th. And so we were fortunate and here we are doing the same thing. So when the pandemic hit, it was literally people just picked up their laptops. I mean, it was seamless. And again, having that seamless virtual place and having the liquidity really allowed us to drive forward on, first and foremost, the health and wellness of our employees and our customers and our retailers, but also to be leaning forward and and play offense and, and to look with every crisis comes opportunity. And you guys have had some, as a result of being prepared, I mean, I don't think anybody prepared for the pandemic per se, but being prepared to work from home and having the liquidity and kind of resetting the vision of the company after getting into the kitchen sink, if you will. What are you guys up to now? Yeah, so it's been a good year. We're, I think, I mean, that's, we're thinking today, we're, we're leading the sector and share performance. And we created a, a new triple net venture with about a billion three of buying power. So since January of 19, We'll raise $800 million of equity and forward commitments, which is pretty healthy. We've created a triple net team and they're based out of Dot Dallas, a gentleman named Tyler Sorensen who came from Spirit, a couple of uh, great talented individuals with him, Raj and Alex. And we're really looking at the sum of the parts of just another spoke in our wheel where kind of three clear paths for that is buying larger centers spitting off a Chick-fil-A or a Wegmans and, or a BJ's and RPT owns that at a very attractive yield with a very attractive growth rate. 
and a very attractive IG percentage of what's left and gives the investors just a healthy spread of where those deals would trade on the market. We're doing a lot of build a suits for tenants, you know, partnerships. It just gives us another spoke at the table to say, we're not just leasing space to you, but we can be a big part of your business. And that could be you know, significant spreads of, of building and, and where we contribute that to our venture. And the third path for that is really marketed and unmarketed deals. Awesome. So you've played an instrumental part, obviously leading the company into setting them up for long-term success. Your impact is crazy. But you haven't always been this good at real estate. You had a point in your time where you didn't know what you were doing. Do you have a funny story for us about or an embarrassing story when you first got started that sounds like one came very quickly to mind? Oh god. First day, right? Like out of this book, I had a I still even remember the land. It was 135th and Black Bob. And one of the partners at the firm said, Here's a listing. And I'm like, a listing first day. And like a name wasn't on it, but he's like basically just saying he wants a cold caller. Can't make this stuff up. Like my first call was Target. The guy picked up. No way. And I said, Hey, I got this great land. I never saw the land. Like, I mean, I didn't go out there. I mean, again, like this is not. Like I didn't have the person saying you do A, B, C, and D and E and F in this order, right? I mean, it was literally phone and phone book. So I called Target. I said, I got this great land, you know, 50 acres and blah, 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 blah. And here, look at the demographics and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, what's your name? I said, Brian. He's like, is it your first day today? I said, huh? I said, why do you ask? He's like, is it your first day? I said, yeah. I said, I could tell. So what do you mean? He's like, we're across the street. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm cringing. <laughs> That's bad. We all have a first day, though. Gotta appreciate the whale hunting, the elephant hunting on the first few calls, right? You'll be our 17th or 18th guest that we've had. That's the most embarrassing story so far. <laughs> wow. Number one on that. Love that. That is amazing. And to think that you were able to recover and do okay with yourself. Unbelievable. All right. I'm going to keep the questions like this rolling. That was too good. Craziest deal you've ever worked on. It was at Red. We were doing an urban deal. I mean, just in a turbulent time, mixed use and a few restaurant deals. And none of the deals specific, but just the shakiness of the economy with the mix of getting the lease assigned for the construction loan, all that and the pressure of literally just like waiting at people's offices for negotiation, you know, because it was like gun to the head of getting these deals in. That was the most intense it's ever been and probably the craziest too. It's like seven deals, right? Sure. Now, if anybody who's listening to this is less than five years or anybody who's less than 50 years into the business didn't learn anything from how you got your internships in college, I would encourage you to go back and re-listen to the beginning of this. But I'll ask this question maybe because you've obviously had additional wisdom to provide. What advice do you have for someone who's just getting going or less than 5 years into the business? I think just find your passion and find a mentor. And I think my thing is... To me, it's never been about the money, ever. It's been about the passion. And if I'm on the ground of passion, that fuels my drive. That fuels my ambition. And surrounding yourself with good people that can help shepherd you in the path ahead and learn from mistakes. To me, finding a good mentor, and this could be a once a month call, this could be a once a two month call, this could be someone in your life weekly. I don't want to say exactly what to do because everybody's different. But to find someone that will really help you and sees you for who you are, right? And, and understands that. So I think those two, passion and, and mentor. Love that. We'll try not to put a billboard on you in Vegas this year saying that you're offering up mentorships. You seem like a reader. Yeah. Assuming you are, what's one book that's changed your life? And if you just can't narrow it down to one and you want to spit off a couple, we're good with that. I mean, from a business perspective, I mean, Moneyball has been my like a calling card, you know, for my career. And I always think about, you know, when Billy Bean's talking with one of his coworkers and he said, you know, if the Yankees or the Red Sox win the World Series, they'll cling their championship rings and cling their champagne glasses. And the next day, 
will be the same. Nothing will change. But he's like, if we win with our style of play, we'll change the game. And so to me, that's always been like a life book. <laughs> and Billy Bean hasn't won the World Series yet, but the Red Sox have. And data, big data, <laughs> has been brought in because of his pioneering. So to me, like that's just been a huge, impactful book. Thank you for sharing that. That'll get added to the list and be on our website. And I'm glad that that book has influenced you. And I think it would be naive to think that you haven't made quite the influence already into the business. And you're still like pretty young. I mean, you still have plenty to go. I'm not letting you leave anytime soon. I'm certain RPT feels the same way. So with all that said, I mean, one day you're going to step away, which is not coming up anytime soon. But it's going to inevitably happen. And ICSC is going to write this big thing and, and all the trade publications. Wow, Brian Harper, CEO of RPT Realty, decides to step away to go hang out on a beach or do whatever you decide that you want to do at that point. When that article comes out, what do you want it to say about you? What do you want your legacy to be like, both in this business and in general? I think in leadership, innovation, and uh, stewardship of people for the business, I have a great passion of finding people that have a gold in them that maybe other people don't see and trying to bring that out. And that might be a new position or that might be a different seat. And that could be outside the company. I think worldwide and larger. So you know, we have two kids. We have a 15-year-old and, and a 5-year-old, Caleb and Zoe. And Caleb has autism, pretty severe autism. And it's been very hard on our family, especially during the pandemic. Where work, frankly, you know, you create a new platform and a four-party deal with four attorneys. And honestly, that was quite easy compared to kind of what we were dealing at the home front, you know, with heightened aggression and not sleeping. And you take a child with autism, you take him out of his routine or her routine without doctors, without therapists, without their school, it's major disruption. And so we're one of the fortunate ones where you know, we can navigate that. But to me, you know, my legacy I really in the, that special needs community, you know, particularly autism, but all special needs and, and the disadvantage within that community of being a spotlight for them. So I'm on the board of Autism Speaks Worldwide Organization, April 1, which I wish was April Fool's. I took over as chairman of the board. So pandemic hit April 1, you know, I take over this large organization from a board's perspective that's obviously managing a pandemic, managing a lot of dollars that were halted, but more importantly, managing a community that really needed help. And so to me, I really think my life legacy is going to be a lot in that field and that space and bringing awareness, advocating to DC and the Hill bringing obviously dollars as dollars are important. You can have vision, but without capital behind it, it goes nowhere. It's a phenomenal organization and there's many phenomenal organizations, but really the special needs community is really a driving force for me today. I know Autism Speaks is, means a lot to you, but I know that for a fact, they're incredibly fortunate to have someone with a vision and the implementation of processes and procedures and getting the right people in place to help continue to put them in the right trajectory to get to where they can help as many people that are in the same situation as you and your family, and particularly Caleb. And such a cool way to answer that question because I certainly want to have a legacy in this business. And you already made it to a point where if you quit tomorrow, you would. But to take it to that whole another stratosphere of what you're doing, and specifically in the autism community is amazing. So I know everybody who's going to listen to this would, and I'll speak for their behalf, thank you for what you do and for giving back and, and for allowing Caleb's challenges and overcoming those challenges be a platform to help do better for society. So it's really incredible stuff. It's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, I say it's been hard with Caleb, but he's been the largest blessing in my life. I mean, he's made me a better man. He's made me a better husband. He's made me a better friend. He's made me a better leader. He showed me and it's showing me every day of really focus on people's strengths and not weaknesses. You know, at two years old, really before the diagnosis, he remembered every state in the US Capitol in like two hours, then did Africa, then did Asia. And when we moved to the city, he remembered every 
train stop, subway stop in every borough in a week. But he, at 15, still needs help putting on clothes, putting on his shoes, and it is very cognitive and gross motor, more of a five-year-old. Thankfully, he's verbal. He's a great reader. Can't write, but he can type like the best of them. Yeah, and then you bring Zoe, five-year-old, assassin, I think the next future president of the United States, hell of a tennis player, he's doing jujitsu now, wants to get in lacrosse, field hockey, wants to wakeboard this summer. I mean, fearless, right? Sounds like it. Yeah. Extremely athletic, extremely smart. She doesn't have the memory of Caleb at that time, right? And so it's focusing on the light of people. It's focused on the strengths of people that I think leadership should do. And I think the great ones do it very well and the bad ones obviously don't. And the two of them have just taught me so much together of really just the focusing on that, right? Of focusing on what people can do and not what they can't do. You know, I mean, Caleb at first, I mean, they thought he was a genius, literally. I mean, this is stuff you'd see on talk shows, right? And as he progressed with age, this gross motor and all that didn't keep up. And a lot of social stuff and just a lot of complexities. And it's just, we've had a very, very, very hard time and, and are still going through a hard time. But we're blessed. And the fight for me is the ones that don't have a spotlight that aren't on the board of Autism Speaks that maybe are experiencing as hard or harder time in the Bronx with three kids and the mom and dad are working dual shifts. You know, it's like, where do they turn to? And to me, that's my passion is them and bringing awareness to them, bringing advocacy for them, bringing help to them and almost being a Navy SEAL to them of saying, I see you, I got you and here's our action plan. Love it. Incredible work. You have a ton to be proud of. And I'm flattered that you took the time to share your story with us. I would encourage anybody who listened to this that was moved at all to check out Autism Speaks. Certainly send those triple net deals to RBT Realty and follow Brian Harper's journey along the way because he's taking over the world one day at a time. Again, thank you so much. I know your time is extremely valuable. This was awesome. No, Aaron, thank you for doing that. I mean, you're a leader and you do a lot to the youth and the world needs more people like you. So thank you for everything you're doing as well. Just here to provide the platform. It was a hell of a time, man. I know you got to run. Appreciate your time. This was great. Thanks, Bo. And we'll catch up more soon. Talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one. See ya. Thanks for listening to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did in fact get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts.